morning. I'd like you to turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I've entitled this message, To Marry or Not to Marry? That is the question. It's a question that many people don't give a whole lot of consideration to. For most people, the answer is, I do. Or I would if anyone would ask. Well, Paul is going to show us that marriage is actually optional. It's not mandatory. It's not a command. It's not for everyone. Someone has said marriage is like flies on a screen door. Those on the outside want to get in. Those on the inside want to get out. Well, whichever side of the screen door you're on this morning, you need to understand that one side is not better than the other. And that's going to be Paul's point in the first seven verses of this chapter. Now, we're going to have an interesting time in the next several weeks because this whole chapter deals with the subject of marriage. And marriage is a hot item today. If you want to draw a crowd, just have a seminar on either prophecy or marriage. A lot of people want to know what the Bible says about marriage. There are a lot of questions. And you may have some questions this morning. Like, should I marry? Who should I marry? Can I marry? Is divorce ever an option? Can a person get divorced and remarried? Well, this is a chapter that has a lot of answers. But today, we're just going to deal with one question, and that is, should I marry? And if you're already married, this is not an option for you. You're stuck. But before we look at Paul's answer to that question, let me say this. Some critics have taken the position that this chapter is not inspired but it's rather Paul's opinion. And so they've kind of thrown it out. And and the reason they come to that conclusion is, if you look at verse 12, Paul says, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord. Some say, well, Paul's talking, but God's not talking. Then look at verse 25. Now, concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion. What's Paul saying? Is he saying, I I don't have a commandment here. I don't have the word of the Lord. I'm just giving my opinion. And then look at verse 40. But in my opinion, she is happier if, if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. This is my opinion. I think I've got the Spirit of God. What's Paul talking about here? Well, go back to verse 10 and look at this. He says in verse 10, "But But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. And what he's saying is, this is not a new revelation. I'm not telling you something new. The Lord already said this. And if you go back to Matthew chapter 19, you'll see that what he says here in verses 10 and 11, Jesus had already said. 
And then when you get to verse 12, notice what he says. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord. In other words, the Lord didn't have anything to say about this, but I'm going to tell you about this because it's something the Lord didn't say, but it's new revelation by the Spirit of God. And so essentially what Paul is saying is, when I quote the Lord Jesus, I'll tell you. When I don't, I'm giving you revelation. And so what Paul is doing is he's, he's setting what he's saying on a par with what Jesus said. And what Paul says belongs on a par with what Jesus said because they're both inspired by God. That's why I don't like red-letter editions of the Bible because they seem to imply that Jesus' words in red are more important than statements made elsewhere in Scripture. And that's not the case because they're all inspired by God. In Matthew 13, 52, Jesus said to the disciples, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings forth out of his treasure things new and old. The apostles were scribes in the sense that they wrote down the word of God And Jesus says, some things you will write will be old truth, and some things that you write will be new truth. And that's certainly true here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul is writing some old truth that Jesus already said, and he's writing some new truth by the Spirit of God, all equally inspired. See, if you go back to Matthew 19, you'll find that Jesus said some things about marriage. He said that man and woman were created for each other. He said that when joined together, they become one flesh, that that is to be monogamous, two becoming one. It was to be unbroken except for one exception, and that one exception was immorality. And then a couple chapters later in Matthew twenty-two thirty, 30, he tells us that marriage is only for this lifetime. But Jesus doesn't go into a whole lot of detail on marriage. Further details on marriage are given to us in the epistles, and particularly the writings of Paul. And one of the primary sources for our understanding of marriage is right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So we're going to enjoy this together in the next several weeks. Now, let me point out that this is a transition point in the letter of 1 Corinthians. The first six chapters dealt with problems that Paul had heard about, according to chapter 1 and verse 11, through the family of Chloe. And those problems were divisions in the church in chapters 1 to 4, discipline in the church in chapter 5, lawsuits, chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, and then immorality in chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. Now Paul is going to switch and transition to a different source of information. He's going to take up things that they wrote to him about. Notice chapter 7 and verse 1, and you'll see this transition statement. And it's a statement that we'll read again as we go on in the book of 1 Corinthians. He says, now concerning the things about which you wrote. The Corinthians had written a letter to Paul, 
and they had included in there some questions that they had. And in the rest of the book, he's going to take up those questions and answer them sequentially. And the first question that they asked, and the one he deals with first, is a question about marriage. Now, there were all kinds of problems in a city like Corinth dealing with marriage. In fact, there were four forms of marriage, of, of Roman marriage. Uh, the first was slaves. Slaves got married. It was usually kind of a tent wedding where you would just take her to your tent. Uh, or sometimes it was even arranged by the slave master. In fact, if a couple were not producing children, which he wanted because they were slave children, he might even take somebody out of a relationship and establish a new relationship because they were a slave, they couldn't say anything about it. Or he might take your mate and sell your mate, and you were stuck in that situation. And we know that many in the early church, many of the believers were slaves. And so they were under this kind of format for marriage. Second, there was a common law marriage. It was called usus. If you lived together for one year, you were declared legally married. Third form of marriage was worked out by the parents. That was often worked out for a political reason. Uh, If you have an aristocrat, he might want to have his daughter marry the son of an influential person so that it would promote his political agenda, and that often happened. Or they would basically have their child, their daughter, marry somebody for financial benefits. And so if the groom could come up with enough money, a dowry, he could have this man's daughter. Now, I can see some problems with that. You know, if you, if you go to the father and you're kind of negotiating for his daughter, and you say, well, she's, she's not really worth a flock of goats. In fact, she's not even worth a lame chicken. And then you end up getting her, and you've got to explain to her that that was just negotiating talk, honey. And then the fourth form of marriage They had a ceremony much like ours where two people actually elected to get married and many of the details that actually come out of our ceremony are reflected uh, and, and brought over from the Roman. Now you add to that all the moral problems in a city like Corinth, immorality, homosexuality, a high divorce rate, and it made a setting for a whole lot of problems. Now some in Corinth suggested that the best way to deal with all these problems was to never marry. They had the mentality that celibacy was the highest form of spirituality. In fact, some who were married were actually leaving their spouse, claiming that that was more spiritual. And especially if their spouse was an unbeliever, they would say, well, I have to leave this unbeliever in order to be more spiritual in my walk with Christ. And some were staying married, but they were stopping sexual intimacy because they said that is more spiritual. And of course, we still see that attitude today, that that abstaining from sexual intimacy is more spiritual. In fact, in the Roman Catholic Church, you have the priests and the nuns abstaining from marriage, in essence saying that they are married to the church, and viewing that as a higher form of spirituality. 
Paul in 1 Timothy 4 predicted that in the last times there would be doctrines of demons. And one of those doctrines of demons, he said, was forbidding marriage. And so marriage is never to be forbidden as a higher form of spirituality. So anyway, the Corinthians were struggling with this idea of marriage. Is it better to marry or be single? Should I marry or not? And Paul gives in these first seven verses four key ingredients to help you with that answer. And I've listed them in your bulletin. The first is celibacy is good. Look at verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote... It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, if you take that literally, it sounds a little strict. Uh, That would mean I I can't give any of you hugs on Sunday morning, females, because I would be touching a woman. I can remember people giving talks on dating, and they used this verse. Don't touch a woman. Um, I think this may be where some Bible schools get their six-inch rule. You know, you're not to get within six inches of a female. Not a bad rule, but it doesn't come from this verse. In fact, if you take this verse literally, I guess you would have to say that Adam and Eve would have been the last two people on the earth. You say, well, what is Paul saying here when he says it's good not to touch a woman? Well, in Genesis chapter 20 and verse 6, God says to Abimelech, who took Sarah after Abraham said, she's my sister, when in reality, she was his wife. He said this to Abimelech, I kept you from sinning, therefore I did not let you touch her. So to touch her was equivalent with sexual intimacy. In Ruth 2.9, Boaz protected Ruth while she was laboring in the fields by ordering the servants not to touch her. Now, they weren't saying don't shake her hand or don't put a hand on her shoulder. Don't touch her meant sexual intimacy. Proverbs 6.29 says, So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife, whoever touches her will not go unpunished. So it's clear from Scripture that the idea of touching a woman is more than just touching her. It's sexual intimacy. But I want to go further than that because this phrase as it's used in chapter 7 and verse 1 is not, I don't think, a reference to illicit sexual relations because he just dealt with that in chapter 6. The subject he's introducing here in chapter 7 is marriage. So as he uses this phrase, he's using it as synonymous with marriage. In fact, some of your translations will translate it that way. It's good for a man not to marry. And I think that's what he means by this phrase. It's good not to marry. Now, before you get too upset, he's not saying it's the only good. He's just saying it's good not to marry. And I think that's important for us to understand because Some of us have a problem accepting single people. We see a single guy, and he's old enough that we figure he should be married by now, and what do we think? think He's got problems. He's either 
homosexual on one side or he's a playboy on the other side. We see a single lady and we say she's old enough to be married. What's her problem? She's got some weird quirks or something. There's got to be something about her that, that just isn't, why, why isn't she married? And some of you married ladies think it's your spiritual gift to go find these people and get them married. It's good, you need to understand, it's good not to marry. Now, that's an important statement to make, especially in that context, because the Jews at that time said, you've got to marry. In fact, they viewed it as a sin not to marry. God said, be fruitful and multiply, and if you didn't do that, you were being disobedient. So the Jews, on one hand, were saying, you've got to marry, Some of the Gentiles were saying it's more spiritual to be celibate. So in that context, Paul makes this statement, it's good not to marry. So point number one, celibacy is good. Point number two, celibacy is tough. Look at verse two. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. Now, that's interesting. In verse 1, he says, it's good not to marry. Now, in verse 2, he says, but I want everyone to marry. Why? Because of immorality. You see, what he's saying is that the lifestyle in Corinth made it difficult to be single. Because of the temptation to immorality, it was very difficult to maintain a celibate lifestyle. And, of course, we know that that's no different today. And so Paul says, the norm is to marry. You say, well, Dan, is he saying that the main reason to get married is because of immorality? Should I just find whatever Christian guy I can find and get married or vice versa because of immorality? Well, no. He's just talking about one reason here. When you look at Scripture as a whole, Scripture tells you very clearly what the qualities are of a godly husband and what the qualities are of a godly wife. And Scripture very clearly shows us that that marriage relationship is to show forth the love relationship between Christ and his church. This is just dealing with one aspect, purity. And that was so important in a city like Corinth and so important in a society like we have today. And so he says celibacy is good, number one. Celibacy is tough, number two. Three, celibacy is wrong for married people. See, with this philosophy prevalent that celibacy was more spiritual, some in Corinth decided that since they were Christians, they weren't going to have anything to do with their spouse sexually anymore, or they were going to divorce their unsaved spouse because they were dragged down spiritually. And so notice what he says in verse 3. He says, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. Now, that word duty means debt. And he's talking here about your physical debt. And this word is the continuous present tense. He says, keep paying your debt. Husbands, you owe your wife sexual intimacy and you never pay it off. 
Now, some of you husbands are saying, it's about time you started preaching. (laughs) Husband, you owe your wife physical intimacy. You say, I got that, tell her. Well, he does that. Look at verse 3. After addressing the husband, then he says, and likewise also the wife to her husband's. You wives owe your husband the same continuous debt. That's an important verse to understand. I'm not going to preach it in detail. But some Christians seem to attach a sinful, shameful connotation to sexual intimacy. Sexual intimacy is a beautiful, pure thing in the marriage bond. God created it. He established it. In Hebrews 13.4, we're told the marriage bed is undefiled. Go back and read the book of Song of Solomon, a book all about physical attraction between a husband and wife and some uh, very, uh, if if I read it here, a little embarrassing even, some of the passages. A little outdated as well. The guy says, your hair is like a flock of goats. I wouldn't try that one today was telling us that in a marriage relationship there is physical attraction and there is to be this physical intimacy so if you are married you have an obligation to fulfill the physical love and the physical desire of your spouse in fact it's a debt and then he makes it even clearer in verse 4 The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Wives, you have released the authority over your body to your husband. And husbands, you have released the authority over your body to your wife. When you say, honey, you're mine, it's true. You see, in the natural sense, your body is your own. In the spiritual sense, your body belongs to the Lord. In the marital sense, your body belongs to your spouse. Hosea married Gomer. She went into prostitution after he married her. So he went out and bought her and brought her home. And in Hosea 3.3, he says, You will be for me, and I will be for you. The bride in Song of Solomon 6.3 says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved's is mine. Listen, intimate relationship in marriage is not 50-50. It is 0-100. If you are married, your body belongs to your spouse and your spouse's body belongs to you. And so Paul says, notice verse 5, here's the application, stop depriving one another. Don't say, we're Christians now, we can do without that stuff. Paul says, stop depriving one another. It's like the fellow I heard about who who saw his wife walk through the room 
one evening and she looked very attractive and so he went and uh, got a couple aspirins and a glass of water and took it to her and said, uh, here you are, dear. And she said, I don't have a headache. And he said, that's all I wanted to know. Stop depriving one another. Abstinence in marriage is only allowable under certain circumstances. And notice what those are in verse 5. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The only time that abstinence in marriage is proper is in order to devote yourselves to prayer. In essence, this would be a form of sexual fasting that you're doing as a couple to commit yourself to prayer. You're you're saying we're going to put the physical side aside in order to really concentrate on the Lord. And we have examples of that in Scripture as well. In Exodus 19.15, the people were told to consecrate themselves, and for three days they were told, don't go near a woman. In Joel chapter 2, there was a time of mourning and repentance, same thing. In Zechariah 12, a time of mourning and repentance, and they were to abstain from sexual intimacy while they were getting serious with the Lord. So the only reason for abstinence for a married couple is prayer. But I want you to notice the conditions that go with that. It says, by agreement. That means both parties have to agree. This doesn't mean when when he whispers in your ear sweet nothings, you say, not now, Alfred, I'm praying. This is by agreement. You're both agreeing. We're going to put this aside to focus on our relationship with the Lord, to focus on prayer. Second condition, it says it's for a time. In other words, there's a set amount of time. We're going to do this for one day, two days, three days. And then it says you come together again. It's for a time, and you come together again. What's that mean? Sexual intimacy is reestablished in the relationship. Why? That Satan tempt you not. You see, sex is not to be used for leverage in a marriage relationship. You never say, if you don't straighten up, you're on the couch. It's not to be used to manipulate In fact, this verse tells me if you use sexual intimacy as leverage in a marriage relationship, you are actually an agent of Satan. Because you are putting your spouse in a situation where they will be tempted. That's how clearly he's making this statement to us. Now, as a side note, I've heard people say that sexual intercourse was only intended by God for procreation. That's not true. Because this verse is telling us this should be an ongoing activity in every healthy marriage. 
And so marriage involves sexual intimacy. And what's interesting here, too, is that sexual intimacy is not for self-gratification. Your body belongs to your spouse. So in a sexual relationship, you are to be giving, not taking. Fourth key, celibacy is a gift. Look at verse 6. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Now, what's he talking about? Well, I think he's going all the way back to what he said in verse 2, because in verse 2 he said, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. And then he says, I'm saying this not as a command, but as a concession because of the way the society is. In other words, when I say everyone get married, what I'm saying is that it's permitted. It's not a command. And I think that's clear from the context because notice what he says next in verse 7. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Now, how was Paul? He was single. So he says, I'm I'm not commanding you that you have to marry. I wish you were all single like me. And then notice what he says next in verse 7. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Now we talk about spiritual gifts, and there are spiritual gifts within the body, but this is telling me that celibacy is a gift as well. And being married is a gift as well. So he says some people have one gift and some people have the other. What are the two gifts? One gift is getting married. The other is to remain single and be celibate. That's a spiritual gift. And it's very important for us to understand this because next time you see a single person, don't assume that they're warped. Don't say, that that guy's single, he must have bad breath. You're to see them as possibly being specially gifted by God to remain single. The gift of celibacy is the gift to be single and love it. To be single and be content. To be single and not to be consumed by lust. You say, well, I can't imagine that. Well, you don't have the gift. You obviously don't have the gift. You have the gift of marriage, and you ought to get married. You say, well, why would God give somebody this gift? Well, he's going to tell us later in this chapter, but if you want to sneak over there, look at verse 32. He says, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. You see, there are times when a single person has greater freedom in service to the Lord than a married person. I am now single. 
So if somebody asks me to do something, in fact, I've been dreaming about what God may want me to do, and there are some opportunities even to do some things on the mission field that I would not necessarily do if I was married to leave my wife for that long. There's some freedoms in ministry. When, when you're a married person and somebody asks you to do something, what's your first response if you're smart? I've got to ask my wife. But if you're single, it frees you to be more available to invest more in ministry. And that's what Paul's saying. If, if somebody is, has that gift of being single, it frees them to only have one concern, and that is pleasing the Lord. Married person is torn a little bit. He's got to please the Lord and please his wife as well. And that takes more time out of your day. So he says, celibacy is good. We need to understand that. But celibacy is tough. And if you're married, celibacy is wrong. It's not even an option. And fourthly, it's a gift. The person who remains single and handles that responsibly and correctly is somebody who's specially gifted by God to be able to do that. So that sets the stage for this chapter. We're going to deal in more detail with marriage and how it works and divorce and how that works as well. I'm going to ask Candace to come forward before we close our service today. <clears throat> 